We are in 1 Kings chapter 16. You should have the handout that will have it actually, actually in there. That should be on the other side of the uh, songs that we had this evening. So if you look at that, and we pick it up today for what it's worth. We've been going through the lineage of kings here in the book of 1 Kings. And we pick it up today with a guy named Achav. He'll be the guy that will get the most press of all the kings we have actually in 1 Kings here. And uh, we pick it up in verse 29. So can you find that in your handout or in your Bible? 1 Kings 16, verse 29. And this is what we read. In the 28th year of Atza, king of Judah, Achav, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Achav, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Achav, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it were a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took for as wife Yitzabel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Sidonians. And he went and he served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal. Seems like an appropriate place for that, except that it's in Israel and it doesn't belong there. Which he had built in Samaria. And Achav made a wooden image. Achav did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid the, its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Yeshua, the son of Nun. Will you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to take this time and be in your word with you. I trust, Lord, that you will cause your scripture to burst open and come alive before us, that we would get it tonight, that we would genuinely, genuinely get it tonight, that we would really be able to be so blessed and drawn in, and that you would give us ears to hear, and that we would have so much fun in your word tonight. Lord, regardless of whether we feel like we know exactly where we are in time or whether this is something we've never heard any of these names before, show us, Lord, how all of your scripture is breathed by you and useful, Lord, to correct us and to teach us and to equip us for every good work, all those things you've ordained. And let tonight be that night, Lord, where we just embrace you like you desire to be embraced by us. So, Lord, I just... I just lay this before you and I pray, Lord, let tonight be amazing for every one of us. May each of us be so glad we came. In Jesus' name, speak to us, save us, draw us dear. God, you know exactly where we're at. Draw every one of us to you, I pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume because I say it or anyone else that uh, it's the truth. But search the scriptures and let the Bible always be our final say. Now we're setting the scene for the remaining six fun chapters of this book. The culture, the setting we can feel from this particular text and from this point beyond will all revolve around this guy, Achav is king, and the challenge he has with God who is often exemplified in a guy named Eliyahu, or we would say Elijah is the idea. Now, to kind of give a little bit of background without giving much, roughly about the millennia before Jesus, about 1,000 B.C., roughly, the area of Israel split into two parts and had a civil war. 
The northern ten tribes would call themselves Israel, and the two southern tribes would call themselves Judah, from which we get the term Jew today. That happens to be the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Now, with that in mind, the southern area will have kind of go on and off about the kings. There will be some fairly decent ones and some that are going to be really stupid, horrible guys. But in the north, every king is bad. And that's really what we see kind of here in this. We read, by the way, that really for the rest of this, the same king is going to be in the south, is going to be there, and his name is Asa. We read that in verse 29. Asa, by the way, for what it's worth, his name means healer or doctor or physician is kind of the idea, and he really kind of is that. He's a decent king in the south. But while he's there, we have actually, he's, he reigns from the, the end of the first king in the north all the way to the seventh king, and that's this guy, Ahab. Now, that's where we're going to be focusing on tonight. And that's where we only get these handful of verses because we really want to set the scene for the rest of this challenge and the showdown and the whole, you know, against the prophets of Baal and all that stuff that we're so familiar with, with Elijah, Eliyahu. It all starts here. This is during Ahab's reign. And it tells us here when he sort of takes the throne, roughly for what it's worth, roughly about 874 B.C. to about 853 B.C. To give you an idea. During his reign, to give you an idea, here in this country, we were just starting to play around with iron, to give you an idea. China, King Li rules of the Zhu dynasty. Egypt will suffer both a massive flood and a civil war during Ahab's time, which makes Egypt very weak. Assyria, on the other hand, Shalmaneser III, will start conquering well, starting with Damascus, and he just starts going mental on everyone. And Assyria really kind of goes strong and then shatters within, kind of implodes until a prophet comes to their capital named Nineveh. And that'll happen within the next hundred years, for which then they'll repent, become a very mighty nation, and then from that ultimately turn and conquer Israel. Uh, during this time, Korea, by the way, has been, is, is in the, what's called the Middle Pottery Period for whatever that's worth. So England here, we're playing with metal. Korea's playing with uh, pottery. And this guy is reigning. And this is what we read in verse 29. It tells us uh, that in the 38th year of Atza, king of Yudah, remember that's the south, that Ahav, and by the way, his name arguably either means bad love or father's brother, the son of Omri became king over Israel. And Ahav, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahav steps onto the scene with three years left in King Asa's reign in the south. Then he'll have a son, by the way, look and leap, you know, sort of like leap first and look later, a Jehoshaphat, who will take over from there at 35 for 25 years. This guy we read here is going to rule for over two decades, for 22 years, and do a tremendous amount of damage. And we're not just talking about politically, because the issue here isn't whether he passes a few laws. They're going to be nice or not nice. But what it tells us here is in regards to his relationship to God which is the fundamental in all of this. He will rule from the end of Asa to 18 years into his son, Jehoshaphat. Leap first, look later. But this is where we kind of get it. And it's important to note that both of these guys have something in common. The guy in the south, I mean, put it this way, is if, it, if England itself were one nation and Scotland were another, except that Scotland would have more. That's the idea here. Now, both of them had horrible dads. Armory was the wickedest king until his son steps on the throne in the, in the north. And what that tells us is that he's going to follow in his father's footsteps, but go worse. His dad was an overachiever and doing rotten things, but then Ahav is just... 
He's not a chip off the old block. He's a mountain off the pebble. On the other side of it, this guy, Atza, also came from a horrible dad. And that's where we got to start this, beloved. Hear me on this. Both of these guys, if we set them next to each other, you'd look at their dads and you'd go, both of these dads are just wicked doofus kind of guys. Yet, one of them makes the choice not to be like his dad, and one, in essence, keeps going on his father's trajectory. Don't miss that. Because I don't know where you've come from, but I can tell you this. If you came from kind of weird stock where your mom and dad were really not people you'd want to be an example of, you are not predestined to be like them. Now, you may have learned some terrible habits from them, But the good news is God doesn't really want you. He doesn't want you to follow that. And that's one of the reasons he's into adoption so you could become like him instead of like where you came from. So the first thing we learn about this guy is his dad and his dad was awful and this guy's worse. They both have their bad dad in common, but they choose different trajectories. Ahav is going to follow in his father's footsteps and take it beyond it. And in the same way, the nation had a heritage too. The nation had the heritage of David. A man who, though for all of his human flaws and an imperfect model because of his humanity, was passionate in his love for God. And that was something to build a foundation on. And yet God is constantly comparing. Hear me, please. He is comparing every king in the south to David. He says, well, this guy, he did a couple good things, but it wasn't like David. Or that guy, he didn't do anything cool like David. David becomes the standard for the south. As where in the north, it begets, it's built on a guy named Jeroboam. We'll even see him mentioned here. Who, by the way, I remind you, tries to replace God, if you will, with these, these cows. Where the one in Bethel, the altar cracks open, the ashes spill out, and it is really a horrible thing. And and by the way, the way that it, well, we'll get to that. Hear me on this and please hear this. In Psalm 33, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen is his own inheritance. God promises that if a nation is willing to turn to him, God is willing to bless them. It tells us in Psalm 9, verse 17, on the other hand, the wicked shall turn into hell and all the nations that forget God. Regardless of how great their heritage had started, regardless of the bedrock it was built on, the bottom line is if they bail on God, you should expect this to happen to them. And we have that warning here. We have two people who are ardently uh, in very, very different positions, but they both come from a very similar household. The North had refused the offer of God's blessing. It was a counterfeit replacement, and unfortunately there was no repentance. There was no change of trajectory. Now the good news is God allows U-turns. The term for U-turn, if I can put it plainly, is simply repentance. And God gives every one of us a chance to repent. But instead, because they have no intent on ever changing direction, there's just a de-evolution of a nation poorly founded. A destruction that was not only inevitable, it was eminent. And every moment until then is mercy. Please hear me. Just because you've gotten away from for uh, just because you've gotten away for uh, this long, does not mean you will. And sooner or later, God promises your sin will find you out. 
Now, God tells us that you can either try to cover it and you'll never prosper, or you can confess it and forsake it and find mercy. That's his promise. But he tells us it wasn't just that he was more nasty than his dad. Verse 31 tells us it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing. In other words, as if that wasn't bad enough for him to walk in the sins of Yerubom, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Yitzabel. Now, to this day, you don't find a lot of people named Jezebel because of that. Of course, now, as flagrant as people are against God, you start to see it pop up, although it's still the same name, Isabel, for what's worth. And it says she is the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Let me give you a little bit of history here, very little. The man Ethbaal, he was the priest of Ashtoreth and Astarte, that's the goddess and goddess of pleasure. And he murders the king of Tyre in the day. His name, by the way, is Philetis. And he steals the throne from him, having murdered him for that purpose. And he becomes the eighth king since King Hiram. Hiram was the good friend of David and therefore also ultimately of Solomon. The foundational treaty between David and Hiram several generations ago uh, on the Syrian side, in this case on the Tyrian side, has now been completely disintegrated because the guy that's sitting on the throne now is the high priest of a goddess of pleasure and he murdered the previous king to get there. You can imagine he's probably not of the same values. Now what do we know about Baal? I don't have to give you much, but just consider these simple things. He was considered the sun god who rode on a bull, who threw lightning bolts, and he lived on Mount Carmel. Let me say that again. He was considered the sun god who rode on a bull, lived on Mount Carmel, and threw lightning bolts. That should be enough for you. The reason is when we start to see the showdown that Elijah actually does later, what we're going to find is that when Eliyahu challenges the prophets of Baal to a showdown, he gives them the home court advantage and in every way the benefit, and yet, of course, they still can't follow through. He makes it as easy as possible. They slaughter a bull. They do an unmarked Carmel, by the way, for what it's worth, and they ask to respond by lightning, by fire from the sky. Every way, if Baal were real, it would be the easiest thing in the world for him to do because that's what he does, just for what it's worth. And, and the reason I say that is, is that these particular priests, by the way, they would, they would light a fire and they'd keep it constantly burning and they would officiate their entire service barefoot. They'd cut themselves and dance and they'd kiss the image. That was kind of the idea. We'll get a little bit more of that in 1 Kings 19. But here, get the idea. You couldn't get more opposite than then than the living God that Israel is serving or supposed to serve and this particular thing, this nut job. Now, why in the world does he marry in the first place? Interestingly enough, it seems like his dad was behind it. Historically, what it seems to be is that his dad, Omri, kind of looked and he realized that there needs to be some form of peace treaty between the two of them and because they're just sort of north of them. Now, they had already been friends originally. Remember, Hiram and David were good friends. But now he kind of looks up there and he realizes as the nation has split... They don't have the same allegiances, and so he wants to work something out with the king of the north. And they do some exchange with, with certain things, and then ultimately with that, part and parcel in that is that the king of Israel's son marries then the daughter of the king in Tyre. And that's how this union starts. But she, what we're going to realize is this gal is nasty. She is just nobody to marry. 
I don't care what safety you think you're going to get from it. It's just not going to work here. No, it came to pass then as if it were a trivial thing. Please hear me in this. This guy was already doing enough wrong and he was hurting people for it. But now he brings in this complete difference. Now, hear me. Up to this point, this whole cow thing that they've had was supposed to point them, strangely enough, was still supposed to be the embodiment of the God they thought they served. At least that's kind of the way that it traditionally is approached. In other words, it's like, hey, well, it's still, you know, it's still the same God, but we're going to put him in a cow form. It's kind of the idea. We, I don't know. I think we should all agree that's, that's lame. Just the same. But now there's a radical difference. And please hear me. The difference here is it goes from kind of reshaping to the theme of all this, which is abandonment. And there's where things happen. Now, please hear me. This is how it happens in all of our lives, mine included. As God makes things simple and it's clear and this is black and this is white and this is wrong and this is right, this is west and this is east. And yet in all of that now, we start to bend and reshape and God who was so clearly in, in just in clear form now becomes like an amoeba. You know, it's like no definitive form. And now we just kind of like, well, isn't he kind of a little like this? And isn't he kind of a little like that? And I mean, isn't he the same as Allah? Is he the same as Buddha? And we just get this idea in our head that we could just sort of mix the whole thing together into some kind of weird cocktail and still going to be God. And then the moment you start doing that, you realize you have already pivoted away from God for who he really is. And sooner or later, you're just going to wind up abandoning him altogether. Let me say it this way. A guy gets married and he's totally in love or appears to be totally in love and he's totally appears to be committed and she is his world as far as that relationship goes and somewhere down the line, he starts blurring lines and he starts going, yeah, but is it technically really adultery if I just kind of hang out and rub shoulders? Is it technically adultery? And you realize what he's doing, right? He's blurring the lines that are there that were really clear when they first got married. But you know what's going to happen sooner or later. Sooner or later, that guy's going to find a girl that sooner or later is going to be a whole lot more than rubbing shoulders with him. And he's going to abandon his wife altogether for her. And somewhere he's going to wake up from all of this and go, how did I get here? Well, he's been blurring the lines for so long, he just doesn't even see it. And it's somewhere in, in all of that, it's like if you ever come to, you got slapped in the face and now you're like, I'm so far from where I ever thought I would be. That's kind of the idea. And the reason I say that is, this nation has gone from blurring lines to outright abandonment. And it can happen to every one of us and it happens to nation after nation, after nation. Because you know what you have to do to blur the lines? It's really simple. Just throw out the Bible. Because if you throw out the Bible and you make up your own rules, well, then you're blurring the lines anyways because God's the one who built those lines in the first place to make it clear who he is. Isn't it interesting that every cult always starts with that? Have you noticed that? It's like, oh, well, God's people really messed up the Bible, so they need to change it. So here's the new, very clear Bible. It's, this is the one with all the corrections. And, it's, and of course, sometimes it's in such an entirely different book altogether that you're like, I, there's no possible way you could have gotten this from this. But Islam makes that claim. 
Mormons make that claim, the Jehovah Witnesses make that claim, and I can give you a long list of others. They're just the ones that we're most familiar with. To be honest, everything since Christianity that somehow makes a claim within the Middle East or Western culture usually starts with that premise. The idea is, well, you can't really trust the Bible. It's so full of errors, which, by the way, then I'm the adult because I do believe the Bible's flawless. And I do believe that God has revealed himself real clearly. And, and listen, my flesh does not agree with a lot of what the scripture says, but that doesn't make it untrue. It just makes it that one of the two is going to have to bend. And I'm making the choice to be my flesh instead of the scriptures, because in the end of it all, God tells us that no matter what everything else happens, that whatever is going to come and go and all flesh is like grass, but God's word endures forever. And the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, all those things that make up the world, God says those are passing away. There's a day those things are never going to be there anymore, but God's word is never going to be gone. And it's never going to change. So let God be true and every man a liar. Because if we're going to be honest, God isn't changing his mind. So it came to pass as though it were a trivial thing. This guy did more than just outdo his dad. He brought this girl in so that he could abandon everything. So it went from a political marriage that his dad sets up with the worst possible candidate, the daughter of a murderous high priest up in Tyre. And look at what happens as a result of it. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. No, that's not just adding him in. He's bailing on the living God altogether. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. There was no altar there for Baal, but as he had sort of loosened the borders, as he had blurred the lines, he was freeing space now for something like this in his life. Do you remember when it was so simple and so clear? Please hear me. Let me make it as simple as I can. Everything that God wants to do is to draw you close to him. Every miracle he performs, every word that he speaks, Everything that he does with your name on it is to draw you closer to him. It's just that simple. The whole move of his Holy Spirit to draw you closer. The whole advent of his word to draw you closer. That's everything. Fellowship is supposed to draw you closer. Ministry is supposed to draw you closer. Your quiet time is supposed to draw you closer. Everything that God, in one way or another, marriage is supposed to draw you closer to God. Everything the enemy wants to do is draw you away from God. I can't get me more simple, can it? He can use sin. And I've learned this is the way he usually does that. Like a lot of companies, he shows you the product up front until you bite on it. And then he actually shows you the payments later. And so we'll really advertise something until you get drawn in. And then afterwards, then you want it paying for it. But in the end of it all, beloved, please hear me. Everything he does is to draw you away. And every choice you make will be influenced by one or the other. You'll be influenced by something that will draw you closer to the Lord and use you to draw others closer to the Lord, therefore, or to draw you away. You'd say, well, what about picking out my shirt and all that? Well, if you're walking with God and all of it, even that can be a blessing. And here what we realize is that this particular guy now has made space for this. And in your life, one of the ways the enemy likes to work 
is by simply moving space that was once reserved for God. And now you're like, but I have this urge. I have this desire. I have this ambition. And I don't think God's really, really happy about it. So I'm going to go with it anyways. And I'm just going to pull in the reins a little bit on the space that I gave to God. And I'm going to make that space open to something else. Well, the moment you make that space open to something else, you set up your altar just like this. Baal, by the way, for what it's word, means master. And I think that's important to note. So he set up an altar for master in the temple of master, which he built in Samaria. Nechav made a wooden image. So he doesn't just commit adultery with God. He abandons God altogether for these nonsense idols. These are the days of abandonment and all the garnishes that come side plain. Ahav did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. This man gets the top of the list, is the nastiest, most awful king in Israel. This guy shows up on the dictionary. Now here's the problem. This is what abandonment does. First of all, it mocks God's word. Because in God's word, there's a definitive right and wrong. Do you remember what the first commandment is? Well, it's the sum. But the first commandment is, no other gods before me. I, want, I must be first of all. I want to be the number one thing in your life. Interesting, the term before me, panim, literally means before my face. God's like, look at this is where we start this relationship. We start this relationship with, I want to be the most important thing in your life. And all the rules that God sets up and so forth is to just help us because we're just not bright enough to not do it on our own. And the moment we start abandoning God, we mock his word. Because we're like, we know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. We know this is right, but I'm not going to do any of that. And we see God's warnings now as some old-fashioned, antiquated crying wolf that's irrelevant and silly and fairy taleish. But we don't just mock God's word. We mock his judgment. Because on one side of it, we just assume there couldn't possibly be punishment because we seem to have gotten away with it so far. There couldn't possibly be any punishment. But the odd thing about it is, somewhere down the line in all of this, we actually then start mocking the fact that when something bad does happen, the same God we're running from, we blame. How could you do that to me? Even though, I mean, I've gotten away with it this long. How in the world could you do this to me now? As if somehow we were like, well, a moment ago, there's no God. He's not going to do that. He's really, he's not involved in my life. And now he is because something bad happens. We mock God's judgment as if somehow we think we know better for our life than he does. And then we find ourselves openly doing what we would never have even imagined or fathomed prior. And that's the rest of our text. There's only two very simple things. First of all, it's like, by the way, I'd like you to meet Achav. Remember how his dad was the nastiest king so far? This guy's worse. This guy is the worst. And just to make it worse, he brings in a girl. Not just bringing in a girl that's going to be some kind of problem. He knows. He knows that bringing this girl into his life is only trouble. Only trouble. There's no living God in this girl. Everything about this girl is trouble. And he should have known she was trouble when she walked into the room. 
Sorry, I just had to say that. Here's the last one. Thanks. In the days of Chiel. In these days, Chiel. Chiel, by the way, means my God lives. He built Jericho. We read this from Bethel. Remember Bethel, the hill of Bethel? That's the broken ash pooping cow altar hometown. He rebuilds Jericho. What's the big deal about that? Well, if we really are in the time period we're looking at here, and we start with that, we're again, we're roughly 870s, 860s BC. We go forward, or just to go backward in time, if you will, to about the 1300s BC. What we find out is in the 1300s BC, the first place that Israel took was Jericho. And at the end of all of that, well, Joshua makes a statement. Joshua, I remind you, was the one who led them into battle. And this is Joshua's statement, recorded in Scripture, Joshua 6, 26. Do this if you have your Bible. Go open it up and find it yourself. Read it with me. Joshua 6, 26. If you have a hard time finding uh, where that is in the Bible, there's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and it's the next one. It's the sixth book. And in the sixth book, in the sixth chapter, in the 26th verse, after Jericho was taken down, Joshua charged them at that time, and this is what he says. Cursed. Oh, go ahead and get there. I'll wait. Joshua 6, 26. Joshua charged them at that time, and he said, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with its firstborn, with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Joshua made this promise, don't build this place again. This place went down for a reason, and it's to stay down. He says, if you do, your oldest, he's going to be in the foundation, and your youngest, he's going to be at the gates. Destroyed, both of them. This was a promise, then, if you think about it, that has been around now for about 700 years. Well, I'm sorry, it's about 500 years. And for the 500 years that it has been there, that's a long time for no one to build Jericho. But now that we're abandoning God in our text, oh, come on. God hasn't thrown his lightning bolts down. He hasn't just destroyed all of us here. And this is a generation, I remind you now, this is generation after generation that doesn't remember the Exodus. That doesn't, I mean, they can look back and like it's an old story, but they don't see how God led them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And how, in one case, 23,000 people were wiped out in a day because of their complaining against God. They didn't see how God was so involved then. So what happens here is they kind of look and they're like, well, it looks like everyone's getting away with everything. So therefore, what's the big deal? Let's just do this. But let's just be honest. If you are Chiel, unless you hated your kids, I mean, that's a possibility, but that would be weird. But, it, but if you are Chiel, you have to lay the foundation before you lay the gates. Can that be honest? You can't just put gates without a foundation. And if you lay your foundation and your firstborn winds up in it, that should be a good enough warning to not set up the gates. I don't know. What do you think? If they have any knowledge of this text at all, any concept that God had said this 500 years ago, a half a millennia ago, then you got to know at a point like that, once that first child goes down, you got to go, okay, whatever happened there, we should stop. This is a good warning. And yet, no, they, they don't. 
He says, this is what it looks like when we start abandoning God. We have to abandon his word. But hear me, that doesn't mean they don't do practices. That doesn't mean they don't do rituals. That doesn't mean they don't perform every Christmas and Easter, if you will. In their case, that would be sort of Passover and Shavuot and Sukkot. But yet in all of that, just because they do practices doesn't mean that they're seeking a relationship with the living God. And you can come at Christmas and Easter and you can do your things, but somewhere down the line, there comes something inside of you that you have to choose over God because God says no and you say yes and you either try to bend God to say yes when you know he won't or you just have to ultimately be honest and come real about it and say, you know, I'm in hot pursuit of this thing and God is not happy about it. And you realize to do that, you're abandoning him. Here's the good news. He's not abandoning you, but he will let you experience the consequences of that action. You know why? Because everything God does is to draw you to him. That's the whole point here. So this abandoning mocks God's word. God, I don't believe that. God said, by the way, and he was warned through Joshua, this is what's going to happen if we rebuild Jericho. And we're like, Psh, like that's going to happen. It mocks God's judgment. Even when the, do we, do we think it's a weird coincidence when the first one winds up in the foundation? And we keep going. And we openly do what we never do otherwise. His son's names. Abiram means my dad's exalted. And Sugub means I'm exalted. Well, what kind of dad names his kids this? Yuriko, and here's the weird thing as we get in all of this. Please hear me, we're almost done, believe it or not. Of all the places to rebuild, it's the first battle Israel fought in the promised land. It was the first thing you watched God take down in your life you thought was invincible since Egypt. I mean, hey, bread, really cool. Water out of a rock, very weird and cool. Let's face it, the bread, even the bread people complain to the point where we say, our soul loathes this worthless bread. Hey, give me some meat. And yet in all of that, when they looked at the men of Jericho, they said, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. There's no possible way we could fight these guys. We are hopeless in comparison. And when God said, no, here's simple, just march around it seven days. On the seventh day, march around it seven times, blow the trumpets and watch the wall fall down. It had to sound like the craziest nonsense to him, except that God said it. We could say, that's not scientific. God goes, does it have to be? That doesn't make sense. Does it have to? So why Jericho? What's the first addiction God delivered you from? What's the first hopeless strong tower in your life that God took down? That for a while you saw victory in. Maybe you still do. And yet in all of that, God says, don't ever go back there and rebuild that. What are you trying to do? Do you really think you can go back there and make it better? The best thing you can do is let it be ruined for good. And you watch this. 
You watch people delivered from crazy sexual addictions, people delivered from drug addictions, people delivered from alcohol, people delivered from violence, people delivered from so many different horrible things. Suicide, helplessness, completely just overcome with emotion. Their whole life was just a hurricane after a hurricane. And that's where they were. And somewhere down the line, they cried out to the living God and he calmed the whole thing. And then God says, we're going to leave that behind from this point forward that never gets built again. And somewhere down the line, we look and we think we're stronger, we're smarter, we're more spiritual, we're more spirit-filled. And somewhere in all of that, I'm like, well, I can play around with that a little bit. Now I'm strong enough to get back out of that once I jump back in. And somewhere down the line, we find ourselves in this place, like Jesus talks about the spirit driven from a house, where it's in infinitely worse condition than it was before. Because somewhere down the line, we were playing with something and rebuilding something that should never have been rebuilt ever again. It's the place where Israel saw victory. And they could always look back and go, remember, see this pile of rubble? See those pile of rocks? That was impossible until God showed up. And now it's a city. Now, I want to remind you, Jericho is going to exist now. As a matter of fact, we're aware of the fact that by the time Jesus shows up, there'll be two Jerichos, an old Jericho and a new Jericho, just to make it worse. When you read the story that Jesus tells, you'll see that he talks about leaving Jericho and coming to Jericho. It goes right to the core and bedrock of our faith. It was our first day of new life. Remember that? Do you remember what it was like when you first said yes to Jesus and how like everything was full of color and there was so much hope and your heart was racing and you'd hear the name Jesus and you'd be like, yeah! And it was just so exciting. That never has to change. But I'd like you to consider this. How does God handle them abandoning him? You know what he does? He sends them a prophet. You know why he does that? Because he's not like us. Let's face it, if we were God and someone abandoned us like that, we would blast them in a heartbeat, probably slowly, let them die slowly, give them something like something that involves like their bowels and their intestines and their their neck swelling. I mean, just the things you could do to really make somebody really suffer for leaving you like that. But what God does instead is he sends a prophet because he's a loving God and he's a faithful father, father and he's truly holy and he's unique and unlike us. And you know what the term for unique is? Holy. That's what it means. He's just not like you or me. And every time I call him holy, I'm calling him different. Different from the graceless world that I know around me. Different from the unfair, unjust, selfish, self-serving world and life that this world provokes. Completely different from the unmerciful heart that I can often possess. And he calls me to be holy. Different. And I realize there's holy. Different. There's most holy, which is clearly opposite of the world that I know. And then there's Holy, 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 reserved for the living God. 
In other words, he is absolutely different from this world in, in every great imaginable way. In the end, what I truly love will surface in abandoning something of its opposite. I'll find myself abandoning that, and I don't even have to be conscious of it, but I'll find myself abandoning that, which just, in essence, will take me away from it. And if what I really love is something God doesn't want, I'll have to abandon God for it. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. He's going to hate one, love the other. He'll be loyal to one, despise the other, but you can't have two masters. Even though you have two lips, you can only kiss one thing at a time. Even if you're Mick Jagger, you can only kiss one thing at a time. So what if I prayed? God, please conquer my wandering, unfaithful heart. Have your spirit move me to love you entirely, abandoning everything that would keep me from you. And in loving you entirely, move me to love your children as well, even as you would, to be holy for you as you intend, even as we sang. What if that's what we would do? Because when Jesus came, he came for one purpose, and he was never distracted from it. And that was to bring you to the Father. Because all God wants is to bring you close to him. That's everything, is to bring you close to him. That's everything. And everything the enemy wants to do is the opposite. And do you know why? It's actually really simple. The enemy seems to know something better than you do. And that is that if he really wants to hurt God, he does it best by hurting you. Because the one thing that hurts God more than anything is hurting those he loves. Isn't that three quarters of the movies out right now? Like you, go, you don't just go after the guy anymore and he gets revenge. You go after his family. You take his kid, you take his wife. These days it's more kids than wife. That tells you a little bit of commentary on our society. But in that, ultimately, he's got to get his girl back. He's going to get his daughter back. And he's going to have to kill everyone in Russia to get there or whatever. But he's going to have to do that. And you realize there's something inside of us that knows, man, who we love, who we love, that's where it hurts the most. Hear me, who you love, that's what hurts the most. And this is why God defines his love in this. Not that he just died, but that he sent his son to die on the cross. Jesus would say, with the love you loved me, before the foundation of the world. In other words, he's like, you've always loved me, Father. And he's like, I'll show you how much I love you. I'm going to let that one thing I love the most, my son, die for you because that's how much I love you. And if that's where God is in all of that, unwavering, where am I in my response to that? What am I abandoning? And I look and say, well, my love for God causes me to leave this. What is this? What has my love for God cost me at all? And as we pray, beloved, my prayer is that tonight we would say yes all over again to the living God. Rededicate ourselves, not because we have to uh, for our salvation, but we have to because our hearts tell us it's right. And that there would be an honest abandonment of anything that keeps us from the living God. Even good things can become bad things when we put them in the wrong place. A chainsaw is a great thing for cutting down a tree, but it's a terrible thing to leave in a bathtub when you're bathing. And there are things that God gives us that we can put in the wrong place. And when we put it in the wrong place, it becomes a bad thing in that context. 
And God doesn't want to give you anything that takes you away from him. And here what we see is this guy did more than just flirt with a different, more liberal view of God. That was all gateway for him to pivot and abandon God altogether. And that's the problem here. He has traded the living God for a giant idol that I don't even want to tell you what it looks like. But it just makes perfect sense in a sad way. And my prayer tonight is that as we turn to the Lord right now, that God would break our hearts open and that we would genuinely say, God, please conquer my faithless heart and give me the loyal one you deserve. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this text and the challenges that are before us in it. What a crazy thing to think that you, perfect and almighty, in every way beautiful and awesome, and yet, yet, you are totally committed to us, and we're nothing like that. And yet, we, in response to the one who is perfect and holy and always beautiful, and yet in all of that, we're the one who still wanders. How does that work? That makes no sense whatsoever. God, tonight I pray that would change. Tonight, God, I pray that everything would change in our hearts and that we would stop being pig-headed about things, God, that you are telling us that we would humbly surrender to, fighting our flesh, fighting our adrenaline, fighting the things that are so easily ensnaring us around us, And Lord, I pray that right now, if there is anyone in this room who's at that stage where they're kind of redefining you in less definitive terms, because we're walking away from your word and kind of playing more of a generalized idea where it's freeing us to kind of move into places we know would wrong if we were honest with ourselves. Tonight, Lord, just lovingly slap us in the heart and just say, God, just put us in that place where like, you're right, God, I need to get right with this. I don't want to play with this. If there's anyone who's even taken it farther than that, where they've loosened up those those rights and wrongs, and they've started to, to sort of develop that now. And they've started to move in that trajectory towards abandonment. God, let tonight be the night where they say, God, turn me around and get me right with you again. If there be anyone who's actually already in that state of abandonment with you, Turn them around and bring them home tonight. There be anyone tonight who's rebuilding their Jericho. There's something inside of them right now, and there's like, and they know that they've left it, but somehow they're revisiting it, even if it's just in their mind and their heart, but you've destroyed it for good, and somehow they're kind of going back to it. Lay it in ruins, God, and may we never rebuild that Yerika. We don't want to lose our legacy. We don't want, Lord, the fruitfulness you've intended for us to have to be gone because we're so busy trying to run back to something that we should leave behind, that you destroyed. So God, tonight, here in this room, please do more, Lord, than just tickle our ears or entertain our minds. But God, tonight, rend our hearts. And make us people, please, tonight, who would say, God, he's right. And I recognize this kind of honesty is a difficult thing. But God's Holy Spirit isn't going to let you get away. And I'm just going to pray a dangerous prayer. 
And if you're brave enough, pray it with me. God in heaven, please conquer my wandering, unfaithful heart. Have your spirit move me to love you entirely. Abandoning anything that would keep me from you. And in loving you entirely, move me now to love your children as well as I should. Even as you would love them. And I want to be holy, set apart, unique for you. Unto you. So Lord, rip from my life lovingly, gently as possible, but rip from my life the Jerichos, the Jerichos. If they're in ruins, let them stay in ruins. Let me walk forward with you now. Give me a heart that willingly abandons. Because it's more than just saying yes to you because we agree that's with some of your teaching. You call us to follow you. And we leave our boats and nets and fathers in the boats with the hired servants. As Luke says, we abandon all to follow you. We want to follow you because wherever you lead will be best. Bring back that definition. Bring back that clarity. Bring back that joy and that life you intend. Jesus, we know you died on the cross for us for all of the sins to be paid for, even these. And when you were buried, just as Scripture promised, these things were buried too. But they're before our eyes right now because we want them gone for good. And you rose to give us new life. A life where these things no longer are a part of it. Where Jericho is just a ruins for the rest of our life because there's greater and more wonderful things to rebuild. And I pray for that for all of us. That receiving your gift of salvation and your gift of forgiveness also entitles you to the position of lordship in our hearts. And for you to be Lord, you have the right to dictate what's right or wrong, when to go and when to stay. Give us a heart to obey, a genuine, real heart to obey, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense. And the humility to do it right. And I commit this to you, Jesus, in your name. If you agree with this prayer with me, you say, Amen. God, you hear us tonight. You hear our words and you hear our silences. I pray you would continue your work in each of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.